Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Women in my mom's generation didn't work. So this idea of a woman who works is a little bit weird too. And like, I don't just work, I run a company. (laughs) This is a very funny 20 by 200 story. So Hurricane... Sandy, which was in the fall of 2012. The team was at its peak. I think we were 24 people. We're gearing up for holiday, which is always very busy. And here comes Hurricane Sandy. And, you know, the power was out in New York for a full week, which was insane. Mm -hmm. We ended up working out of my parents' house in Queens. And at the end of the day, my mom would be like, thank you so much for helping Jennifer. (laughs) 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 It's so nice that you help her. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie. I'm Amy, and this is Clever. And today we're talking to gallerist, internet pioneer, and champion of the arts, Jen Beckman. Jen Beckman founded a revolutionary e-commerce site called 20 by 200 10 years ago, which has always had a mission of making art available to everyone. 20 by 200 works with exceptional artists to create museum quality limited editions available in a range of sizes and price points. I remember when 20 by 200 first launched and I thought, here's a brand new business and a brand new idea. And then I watched it totally change how people consume art through the internet. So Jen is a true pioneer. But as we know, the internet, e-marketing and e-commerce landscape has changed rapidly over the past 10 years. And Jen has a pretty gripping and raw tale to tell about how she's traversed that terrain while staying true to her mission. So let's hear it from Jen. I'm Jen Beckman. I'm a native New Yorker, and I split my time between New York and San Francisco. I'm the founder of 20 by 200, and our motto is, it's art for everyone. And that's why I do it, is because I really want everyone to collect art, and I really want it to be art. Yes. Well, high fives to you for that. (laughs) So let's go all the way back to the beginning and try and wrap our heads around the mystery that is Jen Beckman. Like, so you're a native New Yorker. You grew up in... I grew up in Queens, in Forest Hills, in an apartment. My parents divorced when I was pretty young, but my stepfather is like my father. I have an older brother. I joke around that I've been steeped in exceptionalism from a young age. I always did like the gifted classes and whatever, but I was a total troublemaker too. So I ended up in the principal's office for fighting and things like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was a scrappy little kid. For high school, I went to Stuyvesant, which is in Manhattan, which I think was a big shift for me in a lot of ways. I think about it now, 
I think I thought I was an adult from a very young age and had it all figured out. But now I think about, you know, 13 year old me getting on the subway every day and commuting into lower Manhattan. I seem so little. (laughs) It was a really interesting experience because it was sort of a switch from being a big fish in a smaller pond to being a, a little fish in a big pond. It was, you know, bigger school, but also, you know, Stuyvesant is this math and science school and you take an exam to get into it. And, you know, it's like a lot of the smartest kids from all over the city. And that was actually really good for me. Like I met so many interesting people. We had amazing teachers. Like Frank McCourt was my writing teacher, which was amazing. But I was a terrible student and I barely graduated. I was a truant. Uh, I barely attended classes. And what were you doing with your truancy? Where were you going? I was smoking clove cigarettes in the park and like crying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we didn't call it emo then, but you know, I will be very transparent because I, I have no fucks to give. But like, you know, depression like runs in my family. It's something that I've struggled with in one way or another pretty much my whole life. And also the thing I didn't know at the time, because it was a little bit early for it being diagnosed is like, I'm insanely ADD. And so sitting in a classroom was very hard for me. Mm. I really actually didn't understand until I was many years out of college and diagnosed as being ADD that my inability to sit in a classroom and kind of do that stuff was not personal failure. Right. Even as I say that, it still feels like personal failure in some way to not have had that discipline. But I I just, I couldn't do it. And when I was a sophomore, my boyfriend was a senior. And when he went away to college, like my whole world fell apart. It was just like very hard for me. And then I went to Hunter for college, which is in New York City College, which was also weird because, you know, like something like 20 students from every class at um, Stuyvesant get accepted into Harvard. I mean, like kids come into freshman year with like their Ivy League schools that they want to go to figured out. And so for me to just sort of stumble into like local city college was quite rebellious, I guess. And I dropped out because I was a terrible student. But I liked sitting in a classroom and talking about books and ideas. And I've always been a writer and I've always really cared about writing. So it's not that your brain wasn't engaged or that you were like pissed off at authority as much as you were just struggling with the format that you were expected to conform to? I definitely was pissed off at authority too. Okay. Were you, were you pissed off at your parents as well? Or? Sure. Yeah, for sure. I remember sitting in the auditorium, like looking at the classified section of the village voice, trying to get an apartment. Like I was like thinking about moving out. And I, I do think that like part of it is that you know, my mom sort of jokes around with me and to her, I'm so different. You know, as I've seen friends, children's be born and grow up, like you come out your own person. Sure. There's stuff that influences you, but like people come into the world with certain things about them formed. And the way that I came out was just sort of incongruous in the context of my family. Oh man, I can relate. I always felt like E.T. in my own household. There was no lack of love and guidance, but like they just, they didn't get me. Right. <laughs> I baffled them. Yeah, it's weird. I kind of feel like I had a similar experience and it wasn't until I got older that I think my parents kind of not accepted who I was, but like had some level of understanding. Right. I mean, I think 
my mom is still sort of baffled by me. Um, <laughs> and I think that some of it is that she was 20 when she had me. So, you know, in theory, she should be like a flower child, but actually like she kind of was raised by Catholic parents and has a lot of like very traditional ideas about what a woman's role is, including like, you know, math and science, not really for girls, which was kind of weird being at Stuyvesant. Mm, yeah. You know, I mean, to this day, I really do think that in her mind, my largest achievement would be like getting married and not working. <laughs> I mean, it's totally surreal. And I don't know what it, I don't quite know what it's about, but it is what it is. And maybe it's one of the things that drives me. I don't know. It could be. But yeah, the things that I have accomplished you know, she's seen the articles in the New York Times. It's a little bit of a digression, but like a funny story. So one of my best friends is Stacey London, who is pretty well known. She had a, a show on TLC for years called What Not to Wear. Mm -hmm. People know her. And my mom kind of like flipped her shit that I knew Stacey, like very exciting to her. But anyway, Stacey comes over to my mom's house sometimes and she spent Christmas with us one year. And my mom was like sort of fawning over her. And, and God bless Stacy. Stacy was like, do you know who your daughter is? Do you know that <laughs> I loved 20 by 200 before I even met her? I felt like I was meeting a celebrity when we connected with each other. And like, she's built this thing. And she, she went on and on. And I was just like, and it was just so funny because it still didn't make a difference. <laughs> you know, I have theories about that. I think that parents, you know, they're from an older generation and they just desperately want to stop worrying about us. And the only way they can do that is to default to what that meant for them. And security right. means I can check you off my list of worries if you're safely ensconced in the financial security of a man who can provide for you. That exactly. and also... They can't recognize their own brilliance shining back at them through our faces, so they need outside validation. <laughs> right. They they just can't even fathom that they did something awesome enough to make this kid who could go off and carve new paths and do amazing things. And it just seems too close to home to recognize, I think. Right. I mean, and I also think that for, I mean, I do think there's the security thing. I mean, I've been an entrepreneur for, it's almost 15 years now since I opened the gallery. There's been a lot of instability throughout, sometimes more than others. I mean, she's right to have concerns about that. And I think, again, many women in my mom's generation didn't work. So this idea of a woman who works is a little bit weird too. And like, I don't just work, I run a company. <laughs> this is a very funny 20 by 200 story. So Hurricane... Sandy, which was in the fall of 2012. The team was at its peak. I think we were 24 people. We're gearing up for holiday, which is always very busy. And here comes Hurricane Sandy. And, you know, the power was out in New York for a full week, which was insane. Mm -hmm. We ended up working out of my parents' house in Queens. And at the end of the day, my mom would be like, thank you so much for helping Jennifer. <laughs> 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 it's so nice that you help her <laughs> and she would like hug them and kiss them and I'm like these are not my I mean like these are my friends but these are not my friends like this is my company but anyway we do want to get to your company uh, oh yeah I want to know all about what you did before that because you worked for some dot coms right in the early days of the internet <laughs> yeah so can you tell us a little bit about those experiences but also how they kind of helped you when you were ready to go ahead and launch your own thing my very first sort of 
startup experience was with my friend Omar, who I had gone to high school with. He was running a BBS. Excuse me? A, a bulletin board system. So this is oh. pre, pre-web, okay? <laughs> when online community was new, there was a central server and you dialed into it. And it was message boards and chat and things like that. It was sort of like AOL, but there were niche versions and they were called BBSs. I worked with Omar on New York Online and, and that's where I kind of got bit by the online community bug. And I just fell in love with it. I dropped out of college. I worked as a switchboard operator at the Paramount and Royalton hotels for years, which were like these hip hotels. And I had a foray into the jazz publishing business. I had done a bunch of different things and I was really lost. And then it turned out that I was just waiting for the internet. (laughs) I had no idea because it didn't (laughs) exist, but that was my thing. And I just, I really fell in love with it. I loved the connections and I loved email. It was just, it was amazing to me. And so after working with Omar for a while, I basically decided to move to the Bay Area because I knew that that's where the internet was happening. And I just like, I wanted to like stand in front of the fire hose. So I went out there and I continued to do online community stuff. Um, I worked at another startup called Electric Minds. And then I went to Netscape and at Netscape, I continued to do community stuff, but it expanded out to broader content strategy things because a lot of what I had always done with facilitated community, you know, there's always a 10 to one ratio of uh, people who participate versus people who lurk and, you know, don't post anything or whatever. And so I always like to surface the best stuff for those people so that they didn't have to kind of necessarily wade in. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately now people are relying on algorithms to do that shit and it's not working like it's just not working Mm -mm. i worked at netscape i worked at disney and then i moved back to new york in 2000 to work at another startup it was to upload and share your video on the internet but this was you know 1999 and so it was way too early it was not youtube (laughs) Like people were literally mailing their videotapes to us and we were digitizing them and uploading them. And so, (laughs) oh, wow. Wow. So that didn't work out. And in 2000, there was a mini recession. And then then 2001 happened. I was unemployed for a long time after that company went out of business. And after a few months, I was hired by Scott Heiferman to be the VP of community at meetup.com when it was a seven person company. And on paper... It was like the perfect job for me. But in practice, you know, Meetup is a platform. It's not a product, right? Like they exist to be sort of a neutral thing that people build their own mm-hmm. things upon. And I think that those sorts of tools are very important, but that's not my jam. Like I like content and I like to think about and nurture culture and community and all of those things. And so it sort of turned out but it just wasn't the right thing for me. I I, I always say that the day that I knew it wasn't for me was when Scott came over and showed me how he had figured out how to use an Excel spreadsheet to write copy. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it was a genius solution, but it was just this moment of like, wow, this is not my place. Anyway, long story short, ultimately he fired me, which was fine. But I was very disillusioned because I had waited so long to get back into this industry that I love so much. And I went back into something that had all the earmarks of being the perfect thing. And then it wasn't perfect. And like, I had no fucking idea what to do. So I opened a gallery. (laughs) So 
so it's out of utter like confusion and being lost and because <laughs> opening a gallery is no small feat like most yeah. people have at least some passion driving that I was in this weird position where it wasn't like there were lots of internet jobs to choose from. And again, the fact that I had gone into this job that seemed like it should have been perfect and that it, it ended up being so far from it. Like I, I didn't even know that it made sense to dip my toe back in. And I was just trying to figure out like what else to do. I had a 401k. I think it had 20 grand in it or something. And I was like, well, I could live off that you know, in teaspoons, probably for a year, a year and a half, if I want to, or I could do something with it. And I thought about opening a cafe, which would have been a nightmare. And then uh, I, I opened the gallery um, because I had never bought art before. And it seemed to me like I really should have. That is like a true statement. I had friends who were artists. I saw how hard it was for them to have their art seen. And then I saw that myself as a person, who could have, when I was employed, when I had the disposable income, there was art that I could have bought, but nobody ever tried to sell it to me. Mm -hmm. It's a classic entrepreneur story, right? Like there was an unsolved problem and I was like, well, I might not have any fucking idea what I'm doing, but I'm going to fix it. So I just had this idea to open a gallery. I mean, it sounds ridiculous <laughs> as I'm telling you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, 
will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. What was that process like? Did you just like walk the streets and said like, oh, that's a cool storefront. Like that's where I want to, like, how did that even happen? A friend of mine was in a big group show. It was like a one night show. And I went to the reception with a friend of mine and he was interested in buying one of the artists pieces. And it just, nothing was like set up to make that happen, to make the transaction happen. And it just really put a bee in my bonnet. On Christmas, I was sitting in my living room with my friends and I said, yeah, I, I think I'm going to, I had thought about like trying to sublet a space or something. And I was like, no, you know, I really want to do it my way. And I think I want to be, and again, it seems really weird as I say it, but I said, I think I want to be either on like Prince or Spring between Bowery and Elizabeth, like just a little bit west of Bowery. And I literally like went out for a walk and found a storefront on Spring Street, like the next day. I love it. I mean, nothing should have worked. They shouldn't have given me the lease. So basically like once I signed the lease and gave them the first month's rent and the security deposit and built the space out very minimally, all the money was gone. And I really didn't know what I was doing. But it was fun. I mean, it was incredibly stressful. And the gallery itself was never really a viable business. 
I mean, I will say that one thing that set me apart from the start was that I knew how to use the internet. And that was very unusual. It was still unusual in 2003 for a gallery to have a website. Right. Because it was hard. Right. And so I was doing sort of online marketing via newsletters and our blog and stuff like that from the very beginning. My idea of the gallery was that it would be a legit gallery and I wanted the reviews and the voice and the New Yorker and art forum and all that. But I also wanted to be friendly and welcoming and unintimidating. You know, I always joke around that the gallery was an excellent opportunity to see people not buy art, which is true. (laughs) I didn't really know any artists and so I got to know artists. I'm very comfortable with saying that I don't know and like asking people for advice and I mean, I was in way over my head, but it was really exciting and fun. And we did these fun exhibitions and I learned a lot about how the art gallery world works. And then I also did things my own way too. For many years, we did a photo competition called Hey Hotshot. That was an amazing experience because I got to see so much work from people all over the world and then work with a lot of people and see what it was like to work with them. And then also because we always had an amazing panel and getting together with the panel to review work together It was really gratifying and I learned so much from them too. And so that was sort of like my intermediate step between like the gallery and 20 by 200 was Hey Hotshot. Isn't the critique process such an amazing flow of critical discourse and information? And like, doesn't it, I love it so much. My favorite thing on the planet is to be invited back to a university to participate in a critique or be a guest critic. Because there's something so satisfying about evaluating the merits of a work based on how successfully it communicates an idea, but not based on personal judgment. Like, I like it. I don't like it. But no, it, it accomplishes this or it doesn't accomplish this or it seems like it set out to do this, but it didn't do it that well or it missed the mark or wow, it really captured something that we weren't expecting. Like that whole thing is just... Anyway, so I can totally appreciate how that must have like lit your life on fire a bit. Yeah. And it was nice to have different perspectives. And I'm always willing to change my mind. I'm a very opinionated lady. If I believe something, I say it. I'm pretty frank. And so I think that a lot of times that maybe gives the impression that I'm less open than I actually am. Like, I love it when somebody changes my mind. Me too. One of the great opportunities with the panel was to have my horizons expanded and to get more context. I think that being an artist is really, really, really hard and really, really, really brave. And it it always feels like an honor to see what people who are doing a hard thing and being very brave are making. Yeah. But, you know, the problem was that people were still not buying art. And I was really frustrated because I felt like they could be, but either they were scared or they just didn't know how awesome it would be to live with art. I'm pretty sure I had not a single piece of art hanging in my home when I opened the gallery. And it makes me sad to think that all those years I was living without that because it, you know, I really do believe that living with art is good for you. And so I would see these people not buying art and I was just like, I just have to figure out how to like get them hooked. That's kind of where the 20 by 200 idea came from, which was if we could give them the experience at like a very low cost of entry that they'd get hooked. Like I call it the gateway drug of the art world, our our least expensive print. Yes. (laughs) 
Yes. So give our listeners just a quick overview of what 20 by 200 is and then tell us the whole origin story. So 20 by 200, it's a website. It's a curated collection of fine art and photography prints. And all the prints are available in a range of sizes and prices. Prices can be as low as $24 and go all the way up to $10,000. You know, regardless of what size print you're buying or what price you're paying, it's always a museum quality print that's produced, you know, we have like super high standards. Like the idea is to give people the experience of being a collector, regardless of how much they're spending. You know, we sort of take that approach of breadth across a bunch of different vectors. There's size, there's price. We work with unknown artists and we work with very established artists that are household names like William Wegman and Mike and Doug Starn and everyone in between. And a big part of what we do is, is educate people about art. It's very important to us that we give context about the artist and their practice, you know, what they're doing and why and how that fits into art overall. The idea is that everybody can be a collector and they really should be because it's pretty gratifying. And it's good for you. It's not just about owning something that's valuable. It's about owning something that brings value to your life every day. It sounds corny, but like I always talk about it as like a small everyday joy. Going back to like what I think about the difficulty and the bravery of being an artist, you're living with the product of that, I think that's a cool thing in and of itself, the thing that they made and what they were saying when they made it. But then also it becomes part of your story too. And that's interesting as well. It's an anchor, you know, it anchors you to a place, it anchors you to a time because you kind of attach memories to it. It really delivers a lot. (laughs) And I think supporting artists is important. I really do think everyone should live with art and it makes me crazy that it's not more common I want people to have art collections that they talk about the same way that they talk about what books they read, what movies they're seeing, what handbag they want to buy this season or whatever shit. Like, you know, it has always been that collecting art is something for the very elite. And it just doesn't have to be that way. Especially now, there are so many different choices of places to be able to get art. I think there's no reason to just have like a poster from Ikea. No reason. There's never a reason to have a poster from Ikea. <laughs> but so many people do, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing that's so crazy. I've met some very wealthy people in my time and like their walls are either blank or they have like the most generic stuff. Like it's usually a dude, you know, they have like a $10,000 TV and like a high fidelity stereo system and whatever, but then they have posters from Ikea because they don't know what else to get. They just don't know. And like you said earlier, they're just not aware of how their life can be enhanced by living with art. It is an economy that we need to support. Like we need to buy art from artists so that artists can keep making art. It's a portal to the soul that we can just like hang on our wall. That's really powerful. I want to talk about the trajectory of 20 by 200 because it seems like you got a great response from the get. Yeah. Talk about how it took off. It was similar to the gallery in the sense that like, the things that defined it from the start were not just having that very affordable price point, but also having the smaller, more expensive editions as well. Because, you know, the idea is that you get people hooked, but get them coming back to you for more and give them a path, right? Mm -hmm. Like we had the foundation of, you know, the gallery had a mailing list. I did some advanced PR. I was blogging. So there was like some momentum before that, you know, it turns out people really like $20 art. (laughs) 
it's called 20 by 200 because it was $20 prints in addition of 200, $200 prints in addition of 20. Then we had $2,000 prints in addition of two with the sizes going up with the price point. We worked with some well-known artists and they would sell out very quickly. Also, it's just so hard to imagine this, but nobody was doing email marketing then. Nobody. When I told a friend of mine that we were going to send two newsletters a week, they were like, you can't do that. That's spam. Like they thought, <laughs> I mean, they really thought that it was crazy. And I was like, well, I can do it if it's good. Like our newsletters are going to be good. And so people will actually look forward to them. It's not going to be spam. We had like great organic success and we grew very quickly, too quickly, because suddenly like we had a business and it was just me at that point. I think I was running the gallery like with me and like a couple of interns. Keep in mind, I had two other businesses too, right? I had the gallery. I had Hey Hotshot. I mean, it was just freaking crazy. I don't think we did a million dollars our first year, but we were in our second year, like a million plus business that was growing very fast. And it was awesome, but it was also really hard because I was not experienced at running a business of that scale. Mm -hmm. Another thing that happens, like when you're growing fast, you always have cash flow problems. It's just inevitable. And so not having working capital was tricky too. And it was just crazy. We added to the team at a certain point, like two, almost three years later, we raised venture capital money. And I think that it was good in some ways and then not good in others. And ultimately led to some very bad things. <laughs> it was good because I really love this idea of art collecting being a mainstream thing and art being a thing that people feel is for them, not for other people who are smarter or more educated or richer. I really believe in this idea and I very much want to see it happen. If that's the big idea, you can't really execute against that idea unless you have resources. So venture was a way to get those resources. It was also a way to grow the business up and kind of put more traditional structures in place. You know, I had a finance person. We started to look at paid marketing channels and partnerships and things like that. But ultimately, venture capitalists raise money because they want an exit. They want the company to either be sold or go public, right? They want some kind of transaction at the end of it. And generally speaking, they want you to get to that place as soon as you can. It doesn't make them evil or bad, but like sustainability is not their thing. They don't really care about what happens once it's sold. They just want to sell it, right? Mm -hmm. And like that ended up being, you know, very much at odds with what we wanted to do. And also the realization of the art for everyone idea is obviously like a big business, right? But just making it all happen very quickly instead of over time would almost certainly mean that what you got on the other end was not art. Like there had to be... Uh, mm. there had to be a slow and steady growth mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. than a, they always call it, everybody's looking for a hockey stick in their forecast for their presentation. This was not a hockey stick business. So that was an issue. One of the challenges too of raising venture money is the minute that you raise it, you're always raising more. You kind of get on this treadmill. I was not successful at raising more money. Some of it has to do with being a non-traditional CEO, I would argue that a lot of it has to do with being a woman. Um, I was kind of a rookie. Yeah, it was hard. And it also became a big part of my job, which was not super fun. Mm. We were doing so well and we had a big team. We had very ambitious goals 
And when I look back on it, one of the things that's so frustrating is that that those goals were so ambitious that we never quite hit them. And so it became harder to celebrate the things that we did achieve. Mm. It's normal. Like if you don't hit your goal, like you're not going to feel like you have something to celebrate. Right. Right. And that's also when the landscape changed online in terms of e-commerce, the flash sales came along and suddenly people were getting emails at least every day, sometimes twice a day. And everything was very discount driven. Right. Yes. Like a bunch of copycat businesses came up, things were changing and we still had momentum, but there were just sort of increasing tensions. And ultimately I split from the investors. So another characteristic of being a venture backed company is that it's understood that no matter how much money you're making, you're not operating profitably because you're investing any money you make into growth, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, here we are investing in growth and one thing leads to another and we have this split. And the way that I ultimately got the company back was I said, I will assume its liabilities, which were substantial in exchange for having ownership of the company back which was maybe not the smartest thing to do, but I didn't want the company to die. Like I believed in it and I wanted to bring it back. So that's what I did. <laughs> that sounds like a really painful place to get to. Guess what? I'm still there. <laughs> You're still there, But like a lot of things pulling you in a lot of different directions. And yeah. also, I guess, just a general feeling of being out of your depth and beholden to a lot of stakeholders. Yes. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. It was a highly unlikely thing to accomplish. It's just not how things go. And there are a million things that I can't talk about that went on that make it that much more unlikely that it happened. I was lucky. I had a support system. I had a kind of CFO advisor guy who helped me work through a lot of the stuff. And then my friend, Joanne Wilson, who's an angel investor, had been a customer of 20 by 200 for a long time. And there had been a path leading up to that that was like very difficult. And so Joanne had sort of been advising me through that. And then when I finally got ownership of the company, she was one of the people that gave me a little bit of investment money to be able to relaunch the site again because we were offline for nine months. Yeah, I, I remember that period. And, and I was like, what's going on over there? But you're back now. So right. where kind of are you at in your situation and coming back to the landscape, looking at the e-commerce online art landscape, what comfort level do you have and where does 20 by 200 kind of sit in that ecosystem? We relaunched on Shopify. I used to have, you know, an overwhelmed team of five people doing tech. I have not had a tech person on staff since relaunching the site in large part because we're on Shopify and it's a platform, you know, we have consultants that we worked with to do some customization and stuff, but, you know, being able to sort of offload all of that stuff and not have to scale it and not have to build mobile sites and all that stuff was a big game changer. So we're able to run as a leaner business. I mean, things have changed a lot. It used to be that having like a great product and authentic content, you could build an audience that way and everything changed. I would actually say that one big thing that might not immediately come to most people's minds is that Google Reader went away. And I think, I mean, oh, it's Jamie, in my mind. <laughs> that's not your mind. I know, Jamie. Like, I think for e commerce, people might not think that that was such a big deal, but it was a big deal mm. because people stopped reading. It just changed. And like that community got 
blown apart. Mm-hmm. And everything became very fragmented. So there was that issue. And then there was also the issue, there is no more organic social at all. If you have a product to sell and the algorithms surmise that that is what you are doing, you will get buried unless you give them money. It's just how it goes. And I relaunched the business. Like I always say that we eat what we kill, right? I'm making money for payroll up until the day that payroll draws down. I haven't had marketing budget. And so without a marketing budget, it's just very hard to be an e-commerce business. So that's been sort of frustrating. I guess the other thing that I will say, one of the things that happened in going offline and in the struggle to get ownership of the company back is that I lost my voice. I've always been a voice of the site. Even if I wasn't writing all the newsletters, I had an online presence. I did a lot of PR. I was sort of out there as the evangelist for the site. When everything went down, I couldn't talk about it. And so I stopped talking and I still haven't figured out how to get my voice back. So it's definitely been hard. And like in terms of like where we fit in in the landscape, obviously like there are many more sites. Being able to buy art online is not an unusual thing at this point. And I don't want us to sell all the art to everyone because that would be boring. I think it's good that there are other places to go. I think what bums me out is that a lot of those places are more commodity. Like they're not curated. There's a ton to look at. There's less context. There's less emphasis on the artist and more emphasis on it being decor. Right. I always say, you know, people love to like trot out the like, oh, you want something to go over your couch like you Philistine. I've always said, what color is your couch? Talk to me about your couch (laughs) because I don't care where you're putting it. You're going to buy a piece of art. That's awesome. If you just want to put it over your couch, that's kind of too bad. But here, I'm going to tell you all the reasons why what you're putting over your couch is more than just something to put over your couch. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times now, the line has been blurred so much between art and decor. And a lot of decor is being presented as art. And I think that that sort of undermines the importance and the role of the artist. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. Decor is at its essence a visual decoration and it can do many things. It can create atmosphere. It can really influence mood. It can do many things. But art is a connection to another person who put their soul out there for you, who braved speaking in a language that doesn't exist yet to express something that needs to be expressed. It's like so much more. <laughs> you know, and it has something to say. I love gifting art, even though people are like, oh my God, how do you pick art for somebody? I'm always happy to give people a checklist of how to do it right. Because if you give somebody a piece of art and they put it up on their wall, they're going to have it for, you know, they could have it for the rest of their lives. And every time they look at it, they're going to think of you. To me, that's like a killer gift. It becomes this thing that you live with, that you have a relationship with. And honestly, like the thing that I haven't quite figured out is how to get people to pay attention because they're not reading anymore. Mm -hmm. That is so hard. Like I've written a couple of newsletters recently. We just did an edition with Jamie recently and I wrote that newsletter. We did a letterpress edition with a printer named Amos Kennedy and I wrote that as well. And like, I just don't feel like anybody read them. The worst is like, I'll write an Instagram caption and we're talking about like two sentences max and people will ask a question that is answered in the the caption, in the comments. And it's so frustrating to me that people won't even 
like as they're scrolling, they won't even read about the photo. I feel like everything is the stream now and nobody's ever present. Like they think that they saw the picture, but they didn't really see the picture if they didn't read what you had to say about it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like everything is just like very shallow and very transient. It's a bummer. I think like stuff is cyclical. I'm sure that soon enough, like we'll have another spike of, you know, slow internet. Oh, that would be so nice. I can't lie. I've really struggled like since the election. I've struggled with what's happening in the government on a national level, on a global level. Um, I'm pretty angry about misogyny overall. (laughs) I've been on the internet since before the web was born. And there was a very utopian kind of drive behind its initial creation of, you know, openness and connection and all of that stuff. And now I feel like the tools that are so vital are being operated by man children who are just in way over their heads. And so something like Google Reader goes away because it's just like some business decision. And, you know, like the experience of Instagram or Twitter gets degraded because the algorithm benefits the business. And so like all these tools are like kind of out of our hands and there's just nowhere to influence things. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to go on, but it's just this weird thing of like, I feel like we're in this constant stream and it's overwhelming. And it's being dehumanized. I mean, I think that's my real issue with it. Right. I felt uncomfortable with the stream before I thought we might be blown up by North Korea at any minute. Like, like we do not have the capacity for this much grief and tragedy. We're just not programmed to process all of that. So to me, it feels in many ways more vital than ever that you could have these small moments of joy. But if you can't get people to stop, how do you reach them? And so it's just a question that I've been trying to answer and I don't really have any answers to. Yeah, it's, you know, it's tough. And, you know, kind of going back to the business again, we just turned 10, which is, holy shit. Um, There aren't a lot of 10-year-old e-commerce businesses. Mm -hmm. So I'm very proud of that. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm proud that we relaunched the site. I don't love where we're at and I'm not quite sure what the answer is. Because we're operating on such a small scale now, number one, that's not in line with the vision that I had to begin with. You can't really do art for everyone as a cottage business. And then also because we're so small, I spend a lot of time not doing the stuff that made the business special. I don't get to spend as much time with artists. I don't get to spend as much time writing. If running a successful business means that I have to become a growth hacker, that's not how I want to spend my time. And so I'm sort of like, do I need a partner? Do I need to become part of a bigger entity? Yeah. Like how do you scale to fulfill your ultimate goal of art for everyone. But how do you do that while still like being authentic and staying true to your original mission, which is really art and not just prints that are flying off of printers? Right. I can't lie. Like sometimes I'm like, maybe it's just not the time to be doing this anymore. But then I think about, I just feel like it would be a really weird thing if it just didn't exist anymore. Like, I don't want it to go away. Maybe it's bad for me as a business person to like admit this, but like, I'm trying to figure out what the answer is. Well, you know, I appreciate you sharing that all with us. And, you know, I don't have any of the answers that you're seeking. Um, I wish I did. 
But I do think there's definitely, you know, ebb and flow. There's a rhythm to certain things. And there's times when the water gets really choppy and there's times when it's really placid and you can see clearer and you can kind of see, oh, that island we were heading for, we don't actually want to go there. Let's let's recalibrate. And so you had like a tremendous learning curve. Right. And now you're sort of reemerging you're dusting yourself off and like pushing your hair back into shape and saying, mm-hmm. okay, let's look at the landscape. Let's figure out where we fit in. And one thing I know about myself is that I'm still true to this mission. I'm just not sure how it's going to play out. Right. I think Jamie and I can just mm-hmm. give you like a little bit of moral support that <laughs> I think that happens to people. And I think there's a lot of unknowns right, right. now. And, and right. so this process of feeling out where you're going, I think is a very natural thing. Yeah. And it sort of leads me to my next question. I just heard this like really corny phrase last night, but it makes so much sense, which is you need to water the root to enjoy the fruit. I've <laughs> heard that before, but I do think that both in terms of your business and in terms of yourself, you need time to process all these really important lessons that came about through this hardship that you right. underwent. And processing that is also a way to like shore up your resources, your energy and yourself. And right. so I'm wondering like, what are you doing to water your roots? Both, yeah. both in business and you personally, like how are you taking care of yourself? Yeah, I'm not really, I'm not very good at that. <laughs> That's not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> You're your most valuable resource. You can't spend that down to zero. Yeah. Well, I did. I'm sort of at probably negative 50. I have this like crazy business situation, which is intense on many different levels. And then I also have this weird situation with my life. I like I have an apartment in New York and I had decided a year ago to move and took a buyout from my landlord and then he defaulted on it. I feel like my story is like the sort of cocktail chatter at like in a New Yorker short story or something. It's this evil landlord and there are like these predatory banks involved and I have a rent stabilized apartment and I'm not paying rent on it while this is all going on. But I was supposed to get a significant amount of money over a year ago. And I had decided that once I got that money, I was going to move to California to simplify my life to just live in one place for a while. And it's been going on for almost two full years now. So I have these two sort of like hair on fire crisis things in my life that there's a lot I can't control about either one of them. Mm-hmm. So the way that I sort of feed myself is I am grateful every single day that I have a roof over my head and that I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want to, because like a lot of people don't have that, like many, many mm-hmm. people. And I really do feel lucky every day for that. And I feel lucky that I'm healthy and I have a wonderful partner who is supportive and like the world is beautiful. Really let myself be dazzled by small things, whether it's like somebody's cute outfit on the subway or a way a child interacts with their mom or you know, like a cute dog. <laughs> like it sounds so corny, but I, I really think that sort of opening up to that kind of stuff, it's very sustaining for me. 
I want to ask you, you just talked about like small moments of joy, but then also how difficult it is to, you know, have human interaction with the internet and everything. Are there things that you have learned from your business, but also from your personal life that has surprised you about people? Um, like humanity or individual people in just the way that you've kind of moved through the world with your business and the internet? Well, it's not a cheerful thing, but I, so I host a private Facebook group that's called the She Woman Misogyny Haters Club. I started it on a lark, really, because I was annoyed about misogyny. There's a saying, I forget what the saying is, is like, be kind to people, like everyone's fighting their own battles. There's some quote that people put on coffee cups. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people are carrying some, especially women. (laughs) Women are strong as hell. That's what I've learned. Like every single woman I know is carrying some hurt or injury and has like kind of taken that and transformed it into something that's made them better and more capable and trying to be mindful of that, like when interacting with other people. As you were talking, like this process of metalwork came to mind, this process of annealing, which I don't know if you guys know enough about it, but like when you're forging something, You heat the metal up and when it gets so hot, like the molecules expand and it becomes soft and flexible and you can bend it into any shape you want. Then you hammer the shit out of it and all the things get compacted and condensed and and it cools and it hardens and it's less flexible. It's more brittle at that point, but it holds its shape. And through the course of our lives, we've all been annealed to a certain point. But we also recognize that applying warmth and kindness to something is what makes people expand and be more flexible. Right. Um, And we don't need to hammer the shit out of them unless we want them (laughs) to become hardened and rigid. (laughs) Right. Right. I have been doing this for a really long time and I can tell you that it works that like being helpful to other people is helpful to yourself and Also, you know, thanking people and showing that you really mean it when you say thank you and also complimenting people. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times like we'll think something about somebody else that's like a complimentary thing and not bother to say it. Yeah. I just think it's really good to get into the habit of saying it because what do you have to lose by telling somebody you admire them or like something about them or think something is cool? There's no loss in that. And actually you're making them feel better. And then you're also like getting out of your own internal self. It sounds like woo-woo, but try it. I think that maybe Jamie has gotten one of these emails too. I did. (laughs) And I'll just be like, you know what? You're a fucking badass. And I don't know how you do it, but like I see you doing it. And I know it's probably hard in some ways, but like you're doing it and it, it shows, you know, I love doing that. Actually, it's not just a procrastination technique either. Being as though you've kind of navigated these crazy waters of running your own business and running into a lot of hiccups and a lot of learning curves, is there any advice you might give to young women or young entrepreneurs that you've learned that you can pass along wisdom, wise words? This is like one of the most important things and I don't always practice it myself. If you're an entrepreneur, you're starting your own thing. There's always going to be too much to do. And at the end of the day, you can look at everything that didn't get done, or you can look at what got done. And if you only ever look at what didn't get done, you're really going to like crush your spirit. (laughs) It's really important to acknowledge accomplishments as they happen. 
And it's very easy to not do that or to like future trip about how you're going to do it better the next time. You know what I mean? I, I just think it's really, really important. Really take your victories as they happen and experience them and give yourself credit for them. And the corollary to that is that the failures that you have, the impact of them is so small and you shouldn't let them take up that much room. It, that doesn't propel you forward. That turns you in on yourself. In, it's not productive or constructive. Whereas like, if you're like, Hey, I'm good at shit. I got shit done. You feel like you can do more, not less. I'm grateful for the reminder. I tend to feel at the end of the day, like I failed at my day. (laughs) I think that ambition is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's an expression of confidence in yourself. I also think, you know, it's like that thing that I was talking about all the way at the beginning, when we were sort of at our zenith, and everything was cranking, we had set our goals like so high that we couldn't honor the things that were being accomplished as we went. Mm-hmm. And you got to take note of when you're making shit happen. And nice. on that note, <laughs> that is very sage, sage work. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you guys. It's been really fun talking to you. Yeah. We'd love to have our listeners go somewhere to find out more. So can you shout out your business and personal social media web handles? So 20 by 200 is at www.20by200.com. That's the numbers, two zero, letter X, two zero zero com. And we're 20 by 200 on Twitter and Instagram. And I am Jen B, J-E-N-B-E-E on Twitter and Jen Beckman, J-E-N-B-E-K-M-A-N on Instagram. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Sure. It's been great talking to you. Bye. I really appreciate her honesty and her telling her whole story and just being real about stuff that goes down when you have a business. And sometimes it's not all, you know, rainbows and unicorns. I was really transfixed when she was telling us the story because she painted a, you know, to use the art metaphor, she painted a pretty visual picture of owning the landscape she was kind of a leader in the internet and she understood the tech space and when she came out with 20 by 200 she had this really pure mission and it was a unique business opportunity and it got a lot of traction right away and then as that's happening and she's growing too big too fast the landscape is completely shifting under her feet and I can only imagine what happens when you bring VC money in who's not aligned with your mission. And then there starts to be all this like push and pull and conflict about how to make your business a hockey stick or how to actually get art for everyone. And you could just tell, even though she couldn't talk about a lot of things, you could feel the anxiety that was there and the powerful struggle it must have been to actually get your business back. Yeah, and I appreciate, too, that she didn't give up and she was like, you know what, I want to still run this company and I still believe in my mission, so I'm going to fight to get my company back so I can continue doing that, even if it's going to cost me a lot of money and some stress and heartache and all of that. She's now back in the driver's seat completely. I know, which is incredible. And that's why I have a lot of faith in this business, because now the mission can be executed with some purity of intention, you know? And I don't think she started it for the money. 
I don't think she's in it for the money right now, but it's incredibly stressful to not have money to pay your people, mm-hmm. move about with any sort of freedom, take the next action that's going to build growth. It's really hair pulling. I also think that her struggles with the way that business is done on the internet these days can really relate to anybody across all disciplines just dealing with reaching people. Right. Um, and really reaching humans, <laughs> not reaching people's usernames or handles or photos and all of that, but really making those real connections with people. That's so- hard. I'm a little bit of a novice when it comes to Google Reader. What what was the implication there? Because it sounds like you, it happened to yeah, you. It affected it your business too. What happened? So Google Reader was where everybody got all their information. You would just log on and you were subscribed to all these blogs or other websites. Whoever had an RSS feed, you could just plug it in and, and read it every day. So that's how people were digesting their information. I mean, there were people still going to websites individually, but a lot of times it was just this aggregator of all the things you liked. And there was no algorithm. It just, when it was posted, whenever it posted, it would just update your feed, right? So that's kind of how you connected with everything. Okay, so so it was an RSS aggregator. Yeah, so that was like your hub, and then it went away, and I was holding my breath because I was really scared that we were going to lose all of our readers, but we were lucky in that I think by the time it went away, people were already moving away from it, and they were reading our content elsewhere. So even though I had a lot of subscribers, they Mm -hmm. were reading me in other ways too. So I was lucky in that I didn't really lose a ton of followers, but I don't think that's true for everybody. In my case, I think I was a little lucky, but I was an early adopter on social. So I had a lot of people just following us on other platforms, but there were people who really lost like all their readership. And I think that's what's happening with social media now with all all of the algorithms. People are realizing that they have to pay to play on every platform. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's becoming increasingly difficult to reach people. And Twitter is nearly impossible because it's so fast and so short. You don't really have a way to connect with people. You don't have their attention for very long. As a user, the algorithms are so deeply unsatisfying as an experience for me. I do not feel like I'm being served what I'm actually interested in. And in fact, I feel like I have to work so hard to discover new things. And I'm being shepherded in a way that is completely against my will and it makes the whole experience of as a you know as a as an audience member of social media not good I don't enjoy it I think (laughs) you're in the majority everyone I've talked to is frustrated by it and it is making it increasingly difficult to discover new things even though it's trying to show you new things Um, but it, it just there's something about it that just doesn't get it quite right I miss that human touch. Like when Jen said she used to go in there and like pull out the best of it and serve it up for people to find it easily. I'm like, what? Can I have mm-hmm. a personal one of you in my life? Like, Yeah. Why, why don't we have that? We just have robots now or code or whatever. I guess that's where we're going. But on, on a positive note, um, you know, she, I think, is one of the people left who's really still trying to push that connection. And I don't know where her business is going to go, but I really do wish her the best of luck with it because it's a wonderful thing what she's trying to do. I think our listeners should just go buy some art. (laughs) Yes. 
Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes and see images of Jen, her work and some of our favorite prints from 20 by 200. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We really do love hearing from you. Your feedback makes our day. And if you like Clever, please do us a favor and write us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find us. This episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navaris with music by L1011. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.